There's just so much to learn from Amazon. And this little company in Seattle had become a trillion dollar empire and Bezos, the wealthiest person in the world. Would you say Bezos' number one nemesis right now is Elon Musk? Elon came in with SpaceX and kind of just went much faster and got the government to pay for a lot of his projects. And so Jeff has been uniquely in space kind of struggling to catch up. He's not used to being the second at anything. Why does Bezos like to be more private rather than public? Maybe the sit down is dangerous. Look, it's personality. He's not like a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk where he can whip up his followers into a frenzy of fandom. On style wise, what would that be with right. Bezos? Maybe a lack of empathy, longer term well-being of employees. And that sounds brutal and it is. You know, and I think we've seen some of the impact of that from the fulfillment centers, how tough that environment is and how Amazon tends to churn through employees. And Bezos is the architect of that system. You know, it almost seems like he's okay with a lot of things, but he is not okay with the unionization of Amazon. Why is that? Let me put it this way. The Amazon website is 24 seven. So they're hiring and they're firing and they're working around the clock. There's a backlog, they're shifting employees to different jobs. And all of those things, Patrick, that I just described are things that, you know, a union is gonna collectively bargain against. You know, we've seen again and again around the world, Amazon walking away from, from facilities when the discussion turns to unions. So if you want to find out about the $180 billion man today, maybe 200 by the time you watch it, but the $180 billion man, Jeff Bezos, learn more about him. There is no one that's written and researched him more than my guest today, Brad Stone, who is a senior executive editor for Global Technology at Bloomberg News, and he oversees a team of 65 reporters and editors that cover high-tech companies, startups, cybersecurity, and internet trends around the world. He wrote a book in 2013 called The Everything Store about Amazon, which became the Goldman Sachs Business Book of the Year Award. That's a pretty big deal to get. Didn't please McKinsey Scott uh, at the time, McKinsey uh, Bezos at the time when the book came out, but uh, raving reviews, we read it ourselves, translated in 35 different languages. And after writing a book about Bezos, eight years later, he writes another book called Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a global empire, which just came out last week. With that being said, Brad, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, so is this true that you are a twin and you're a father of twins? Is that true or? That is true. I like to say that we are reproducing at an exponential rate. That's impressive, man. I got to tell you, they they say it skips a generation, but apparently didn't skip yours. My family is littered with them. So your, oh, so your family is littered with them. Yeah, cousins and, and extended okay. family. Yeah, well, it's you crazy. Know, maybe there is a secret sauce in your family we don't know about. Maybe your next book needs to be How to Produce Twins. We don't know. Maybe yeah, there's an audience for that. Anyways, let's get right into it. So, Brand, out of everybody you can study, out of everybody can go out there and, you know, research and, you know, do what you do about it, why did you pick Jeff Bezos? Boy, I mean, early on, it was it was almost circumstance, Patrick. I, I was writing about Silicon Valley for the New York Times and then Bloomberg. And, you know, there were books about Google and Apple and Facebook. And, um, you know, Amazon seemed a little bit of the, the cipher in the tech community up there in Seattle, private, uh, fiercely secretive. And so the Everything Store was born out of, you know, opportunism. He, you know, I wanted to write a company I, about uh, and a person who I thought was interesting. And of course, then Amazon became very interesting and the book kind of hit at a moment where uh, the book industry and the larger world was grappling with Amazon's power. 
And then, you know, five, six years passed and the story had changed. And, and this little company in Seattle had become a trillion dollar empire and Bezos, the wealthiest person in the world. And so I sort of realized my first effort needed a sequel, a second chapter. And, and then in some ways, as I was working on the book, the story just kept getting more interesting. So, so first time you interviewed, it's interesting when you're saying that, because at first you're like, why would he write a book about it? And then you and I were talking offline. It's a complete different animal today. It was a $120 billion company, I believe in 2012, when you were re- writing the book, that 150,000 employees, give or take. Today, they're $1.625 trillion company, 1.2 million employees. And he's all over the place. He's bought a lot of different things, about to buy a lot of other companies. Maybe we'll talk about the possibility of them buying uh, uh, MGM. But, you know, the first book, I feel like uh, uh, in in a part of the book, you write the fact that you had a chance to interview him for the first book. Then when you came out, he wasn't too happy about it because of a part of the story. Can you tell us what the evolution is from the first book to the second book? Right. Right. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, the the books are similar in one respect. You know, there's just so much to learn from Amazon. It is it is almost the, you know, the example of modern business and the opportunity of disruption. Um, and so, you know, both I think both books are are full of revelations and lessons for students of business. So let's let's just posit that. In terms of the company's cooperation, there it was actually very similar, maybe even a little bit better this time in terms of you know, the company emerging from its shell, allowing me to interview senior executives. Um, Bezos himself was very guarded on the first book. He, uh, he, he sort of like listened to my pitch and then he said he didn't want to cooperate. As you mentioned, uh, Patrick, the book came out. He didn't like it for a number of reasons, including the depiction of its corporate culture is pretty, you know, tough. Uh, and of course, I, you know, feel like that's sort of been proven out amply uh, by time and various testimony from employees. And then there was a personal aspect to it, which I think you're referring to, which is I ended up tracking down his biological father, lo- long lost uh, biological father in the first book. And, and that sort of hit a little bit too close to home. You mentioned the negative review from uh, his wife at the time, Mackenzie. And then years passed. And, you know, when I came to him for this book, they, they you know, he and, and emailed him directly. You know, he decided they decided to cooperate. He, he didn't give me an interview for this book, but, you know, I would point to the fact that over the past few years, you know, Bezos has been a scarce entity on the on the public stage, at least. I mean, he's obviously been out there, but in terms of interviews and reflections and grappling with the tough questions around Amazon, he, do, he just doesn't tend to do that a lot. So you, that that prompts two questions right there that, that that I'll go to one of them, then the other one. The first one is the fa- father that, uh, you know, chasing him down and, and you know, wanting to speak with the biological father. What was that experience like for you when you spoke? Yeah. Did you see a resemblance? Did, was he shocked? I can't believe my son is doing this. What did you notice when he spoke to his father? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll just say, you know, back then I was sort of curious, well, what makes, what are the ingredients, you know, that go into such a unique and driven entrepreneur, entrepreneur and business figure? And, you know, and that is everything from his mentors to his early jobs and, of course, to his upbringing. And, you know, Patrick, he, he went to his high school years and largely grew up there in South Florida and, you know, talked to friends and, and um, family members. He allowed me to talk to his parents, his mother and his father, who's actually really a stepfather. And, and one of the questions that I was considering as I pursued it is, you know, well, okay, so where was the biological father and, and had that created any kind of an absence in his life that contributed to his remarkable drive? 
So, you know, tracked down the father who was running a bike shop in, in Arizona. And it turned out that the guy hadn't known that his son had become Jeff Bezos. And that ended up just being a sort of remarkable story and a little bit of a wistful story and tied back into the Amazon story because Bezos had always run the company with this principle of never having any regrets. And here I had tracked down the father figure who had been important in his very early life, then had left the family and had a lot of regrets. So in that way, it tied a bow around one aspect of that story. Yeah, he talks about regret uh, minimization. I think that's the word he uses. I think it's right. the word you use in a book, the first one. But going back with uh, his father, are you saying like his father didn't know that Jeff was his son? Like you had to find Sorry. out. Oh, so you, so you had to find out through his mom, who is his biological father. And okay. Walk yeah, me let through me, that part. Yeah. Yeah. No, let me clarify. No, he, he knew he had a son in high school. Okay. The, the couple it. was uh, in high school. He knew he had a son. They were married. He was in their lives for, for two or three years after that. And then uh, they, they got divorced and he left and he had lost track of the family and didn't know what had happened to the son that he had had as a kid and didn't know if he was alive or not. And then ultimately, when I knocked on his door in 2013, didn't know that this wealthy, public-facing, <laughs> famous businessman was that kid, that baby. He yeah, literally had no idea. No idea. No. After yeah. the meeting with you and him, did he reach out to Jeff at all? Did they have any kind of uh, interactions or conversations meetings? Or yeah, no? he, he tried to reach out, and, and Bezos uh, wrote him a note. And then he and then he passed away about a year later, I think. So they never met. They never met up. As far as I know. Okay. As far as I know. You know, you know, it's interesting. And, and I'm curious to know what you're saying. Maybe you don't have an opinion on this. Maybe you do. Do you notice a correlation between uh, individuals who, you know, there are people that become millionaires. There are people that become billionaires. I mean, you know, you can come up with a good idea and become a billionaire. But there are a few people that for whatever flipping reason, they mm -hmm. cannot stop they can't even help themselves. It's this energy like, when is it going to be enough for you? When like, and then you go back and you study Elon Musk with the relationship with his father, you'll know, you know, all this stuff. And then, you know, Steve Jobs, mom, you know, hey, how do you give me up? And, you know, Bezos, father, do you think there is a correlation with one of the parents almost not seeing like they're going to amount to anything? How dare you leave me that I'm going to prove a point right. the rest of my life for you to say you weren't there? Do you kind of see something like that? That's what I was curious about that, but let's put it this way. Uh, let's not advise that an ingredient to uh, good parenting or raising a motivated child is to leave, is to depart their life. <laughs> That's probably, but, and yet um, I, that, you know, yeah, I, I think so in some way, um, you know, and obviously every, every kid abandoned by a, a parent is, you know, not going to be a high achiever. In fact, probably the opposite is true. And yet in some of those cases, and, you know, we can look to Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, right. yep. you know, when the parental figure was missing, it, it seemed to have been at least one ingredient in a remarkable ambition and, and level of achievement. And, and yeah, that's what I was, you know, I'm not a psychologist or, a, you know, so I don't, I don't really know, but certainly that's why I went down that path. And, you know, and it's an open question, you know, wh whether that was sort of fair game. Right. And I don't you know, and even after all, all these years, I mean, I'll defend it. But I think it's, a, you know, it's a good question, you know, like probing into the private life and the early life of a, of a business figure. I mean, I would say that Bezos has now had has made an impact on this on this world to such an extent that 
um, you know, understanding uh, from whence he came and that elixir, you know, that fueled him is, is, is interesting. I think that's an understatement. And when, when you think about, you know, the impact he's made in the world, and I don't think he's stopping anytime soon, even though he gave it up to Andy Jazzy from AWS, which, by the way, in an interview with Google seven years ago, when they asked you, who do you think would replace him? You actually brought up Andy's name that could potentially mm-hmm. one day because the guys at the top are loyal to him. Yes, they may have a high turnover ratio and middle management, but the guys at the top enjoy working with them based on the culture that they have there. Tyler Perry, I don't know if you know who Tyler Perry is. You may know Tyler. Of course, he's a, a, a very big name. He said one time that he had a fallen out with his dad, I believe, and he told his dad, how much do I have to spend for you to never call me ever again? If I buy you a house, if I buy you a car, if I spend money, because he wanted to say you were not there during the, the years. I'm going to I'm going to let you know right now you want money. I'll get this. I'll get this. I'll get that because I want to go out there. But there almost seems like there's a driver that I thought maybe had a little bit more uh, to go into. It'd be very interesting if a psychologist or a psychiatrist and you actually worked on a project together to see how much deeper that can get. The other part you said is. The fact that uh, when you wanted to go interview him, he kind of is like, no, I'll let my executives talk to you, but not myself. And you said he's more on the private side. He doesn't like to, you know, go and, you know, talk about those tough conversations. You know, Elon Musk on the opposite end, he's like total opposite. He'll tweet, right. you know, he'll go smoke weed with Joe. He'll go, you know, hey, $69,000 for the Tesla, $420 a share. We're going to go buy it back. He's a troll master, chess master, game, all this stuff that he does. Why does Bezos like to be more private rather than public? Is it a personality thing or is it just kind of, a you know, he sees way too much risk in being in a public eye? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, Elon, I mean, their styles are so different. Elon has, you know, everything that you described, but also he's, you know, we can admit maybe that he's undisciplined. Uh, the tweets are, you know, as likely to get him into trouble, True. either regulatory or, yeah. or legal, as whip his fans into into a frenzy. Um, it's his it's a style. It's been unmistakably effective. He can do it in part because his ventures are really inspirational. Tesla and um, and SpaceX, you know, Bezos, maybe, you know, yes, there's a personal personality difference. He's so disciplined and careful. The stories that he tells in interviews are like polished little stones that he's used and deployed over the years. I've heard them all. I could probably give the speech myself. You know, at the same time, he is uh, the CEO, the founder of a company that evokes much more complicated feelings in people. You know, uh, um, uh, and that's you know that's um, rightly or, or not. Um, but it's a retailer. It's it's competition is sympathetic, small and pop mom and pop businesses. Um, it's sort of like, in some respects, Walmart, you know, a juggernaut from afar that reaches into communities. Um, it employs tons of people in everyone's local community. It's got complicated kind of tax relief schemes. And it's a lightning rod. It is, it is, it's occupied that place in the public imagination right now where people both depend on it. And in the same breath, after they're clicking the buy now button, they're criticizing it, right? I mean, and so maybe he has to be more careful. Maybe to sit down and make himself available like Elon does is in some respects dangerous because he's going to be asked about taxes and relationship with the workers and competition. So I don't, I don't know, but he is just more disciplined and careful. And he, look, it's personality. He can't, he, 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 he can't, he's not like a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk where he can whip up his followers into, you know, a frenzy of fandom 
It's just he's a he's kind of still a geek, Patrick, when it gets down to it, a nerd. So so it, it, would you categorize? I mean, that's a good way of putting it. Would you say Musk, Jobs, Gates, Zuck, you know, uh, 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 Bezos? Would you kind of say the personalities where Gates is a little bit more? He's been in the public eye more lately, you know, right. vaccine, all this other stuff. Here's what we need to do. Challenges we're facing. But would you kind of put him more on the Gates and Zuck side than the Elon and Jobs side? Maybe that's true. I mean, in some ways, I think he tries to be up here, hovering above it. You know, he's so strategic in in what he says and how he talks and where he does it. In some ways, it's when he talks, when he writes a letter to shareholders, when he gives an interview with a fellow billionaire on a stage somewhere, um, or when he talks about Blue Origin, a space company, it's tactical. He's trying to deliver a message. You know, he's He's, you know, one of the things is he's just incredibly strategic with his time. And so partly it might be that. But when he does talk, there's always a goal and a, and a you know, and an end game. So I don't know that he's really even that consumed with his public image. Um, I mean, I, he certainly does care about it because you see him responding to criticism in his writing and, and, his, and the speeches he does give. But um, I think he just tries to sort of hover above it and no longer really cares, perhaps. And at, with a $180 billion fortune, maybe he doesn't have to, uh, you know, cares that much about getting people to really understand him. I, I think he cares, though. I think he cares because, no, he does. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, he responded to Trump and his guy told him not to do it. And you were kind of talking mm-hmm. about it yourself. Hey, just let it go. Jay, Carl, you know, all that stuff that was going on, let it go. No, he responds. And they had this little battle going on back and forth. Uh, I asked because, you know, uh, it's an old school style he has. Like, this whole thing about being in the public eye, it's more new school. It's not old school. Social media has almost forced a lot of CEOs to be in a public eye. Generally, you know, powerful business people were like, listen, just, you know, I, I don't want to do a lot of interviews. You know, your publicist would say, don't talk to anybody. What if you say the wrong thing? Where today it's more like, let me go handle it. Let me respond back on Twitter. Let me go do this. We have more access. So it does show a lot of discipline to him internally. You know, as you did the interview from the first book to the second one, obviously on the second one, you're saying you didn't meet with him, but he did allow you to go on and interview a lot of his executive, which is great. Did you ever read the book Accidental Millionaire that was written in the 80s? I want to say uh, uh, it was a book written in the 80s about jobs. And these were former employees that left. You know, the book Accidental Billionaire about Zuck. Prior right. to Accidental Billionaire, there was a book called Accidental Millionaire. And it was written, when you read the book, you could tell it was written by a former employee who hated jobs. I mean, mm-hmm. couldn't stand jobs. And in many documentaries, when they interview people that worked with jobs at his peak, you know, you talk about bully, which we'll get to chapter three here in a minute. But they say, you know, uh, 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 how he was and how he would, you know, flip out and this and that. When you were doing interviews from people recently, not old, not 2013, I'm talking about recently, and interviewing former people as well as exec, ex, uh, existing people, what things have you seen evolve in the last eight years from 2012 to 2020, 2021? In terms of the corporate culture or the- Yeah, in the, terms of like, let's just say oh, 2003, when you were talking right. to disgruntled employees who left, they would say, oh, he's still right. this. Maybe disgruntled employees that now left are saying something different. And the people that right. are there who are happy are saying something different. Like Bezos has changed because of that, that, that. Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, yeah, yes, there are disgruntled employees, but you know, it, it's the preponderance of, of the of the workers that I've interviewed over the years, you know, have been, I think, pretty sort of a clear-eyed, um, 
you know, and, and Frank about their contributions, the, the, the pride they took at, at the work, but also, but also the, some of the disadvantages or the, you know, the leadership style that ultimately burned them out. So it wasn't, it's not quite disgruntled. It's sometimes exhausted or, or you know, post-traumatic stress disorder from being <laughs> lashed to a rocket ship, you know, captained by a, a CEO who just never stopped. And in the early years, they described a leadership style that was brusque and demanding and sometimes demeaning and intimidating. And in the first book, The Everything Store, I tell all sorts of stories of Bezos saying remarkable things, you know, like, why are you wasting my life? And then and Amazon Unbound, that leadership style has matured somewhat. Um, you know, he, 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 he doesn't, you know, he bottles that up, uh, and, and, you know, but he still has incredibly high standards and he'll walk out of a room if he feels like employees haven't solved the problem or ha aren't betting big enough or thinking big enough or don't have an ingenious solution to something. I tell the story in Amazon Unbound of Alexa and the creation of Alexa, which he sponsored and got into the details of it. And it's really, you know, this lesson for, I think, anybody in business of, you know, not how just having the idea isn't enough, but you have to, as a CEO, sort of use your leadership magic to sponsor it, to get into the details, to understand the technical specifications, and then to allow your employees, as one says, I quote her in the book, is to be unbound, you know, to not limit themselves in terms of how they're thinking or investing. The, the big question with Alexa was how, how they they were going to test it. And ultimately, before launch, ultimately, they bring it out into the world uh, in disguise. And they rent apartments and houses and shroud the thing with uh, acoustic fabric and get contractors to go through reciting scripts. And that's the only reason why I got smart enough to, to launch. And that was Bezos basically pushing his people. So yeah, I think the quality, the, the tenor of the testimony about the culture has changed, but in some ways it's just as difficult. It's just his leadership style softened a little bit. So, okay, his leadership style softened a little bit, but it's still, so do, uh, so do you notice, uh, what do you notice with the guys that can stay with them long-term? Because when you're working with a hard-charging guy, listen, it's got to be very annoying. It's not got to be something you look for. You either like it and you're almost just as screwed up as the other person is that you're driven by it, or you're just like, I can tolerate this for five years. I don't know if I can do this 10 years or 20 years. I'm going to use this as a resume. Then I'm going to go work at Netflix. I'm going to go work at whatever, right? But those you notice that can last with Bezos long-term, what do they have in common? They tend to think like him, I think. They buy into the, the leadership style and the culture. Um, they are, um, you know, they're, they're independent thinkers. Um, they're, they're creative. You know, Be Bezos had, you know, Jeff Wilkie for a long time. He, he retired last year. He was the head of the consumer business. Mm -hmm. And then Andy Jassy, who's taking over. I mean, they both were really, you know, like protégés in a way and made big contributions on both sides of the business. Um, but I, I think actually one factor, Patrick, is that Bezos just trusted them and then gave them a lot of leeway and autonomy. And, you know, he, Bezos focuses on the new things and Wilkie ran the retail business and Jassy ran the, the cloud business. And, and, the, and then Bezos would sort of show up every so often to, you know, to push them and sometimes to undermine them or ma make them, you know, re rethink elements of their business. And so, you know, I think, I think the tolerance for that style was, was sort of key because obviously, 
you know, if you if you're if you've created a you know multi billion dollar business and then the boss is showing up, I think to blow blow you up every once in a while, that takes a little bit of patience and self awareness, and you have to have a lot of respect for the boss as well. So I think that's 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 another key element. They 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 all have they all seem to you know be members of the Bezos admiration club, and of course you have to be if you're going to be in there for the long haul and put up with the challenges of of that culture, you know, it's because you're buying in not just to the style, but to the guy and the belief that, you know, he's a visionary and he's right about a lot of things. He's the prophet. I mean, he's, he's a true yeah. prophet visionary, you know, it's, it's, and what makes him, you know, I guess I'll ask this question before we go to the next topic is on, on style wise, you know, there are leaders who are very good with messaging. They have a vision. They want to go out there and do this. There are those who are maybe not very good at expressing their message to you, but they're very disciplined. So they come in, hey, where's this? It's time, hey, 30 minutes, it's 30 minutes. I didn't say 31 minutes. So they're very much respecting of their time. There are those who are great salespeople. There are those who are great developers of product. They're innovative, they're creative, like a jobs, right? There are those that are actually very good with numbers. Like they know how to go raise the money and hey, we'll go get this. And they'll speak the balance sheet language better than others. They're almost like a CFO, but they're not. And then th there are some that just sheer drive competition which one would you say, Bez, if you were to say his number one, not Pat, he's all of that. I get that, but I want to know, was, like, I know, but you know, like I'm talking about the one thing above it all, what would that be with Bezos? Right. Okay. Um, so we're going to posit that most of the boxes are checked. Sure. Um, I, yeah, I get of that. Of course, you know, he's, but I, you know, I'm going to say actually that there's a little bit just to round it out. Um, a little bit of a what I would call maybe a lack of empathy or, you know, an, a willingness to disregard uh, feelings, um, the need to drive to consensus, yep. um, you know, the, the longer term well-being of employees. And that's, you know, it sounds brutal and it and it is, you know, and I think we've seen some of the impact of that from the fulfillment centers, how tough that environment is and how Amazon tends to churn through employees. And Bezos is the architect of that system. And he doesn't care. And maybe that is the, you know, the the ingredient uh, part part of it of his success. And the thing that also is not to be emulated. Or you know, in most environments, we would want to think carefully about emulating it. Um, you know, this is this is part of the reason why it's a it's a difficult culture and why the rate of turnover is high and why he doesn't seem to care. He sits atop of this massive expanding empire because in some ways, you know, that he's focused on the construction of a business that serves customers and the feelings of everyone who is in the middle making that machinery work doesn't really matter. And 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 I don't know, maybe that's it because there are plenty of inventors and innovators and there's there are plenty of uh, business architects and yet he has constructed a business on a scale that's been almost unknown to man. And it's because he never stops and doesn't slow down and doesn't seem to concern himself with the things that might, you know, give you or I a little pause. Yeah, that 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 that's what I figured. And it's leading me to the next subject here. Uh, let me write my next question here. Uh, so so, you know, lack of empathy. OK, um, it's almost like not feeling guilty for what others have to do to get the work. You do it, you do it, you don't. I don't care. It's your fault. It's not my fault. Like you have to do the work. I don't feel guilty for your lack of effort or lack of desire to want to learn and improve. I get that. That's you. You got to own that. I don't own that. OK, Elon Musk is on SNL. Okay. And I'm sure you saw when he was on SNL, right? And he got up and, you know, maybe something, you know, Bezos would never do, but Elon gets up there and he's on SNL. And he says, 
I'm actually making history tonight as the first person with Asperger's to host SNL, or at least the first to admit to it. So I won't make a lot of eye contact with the cast tonight, but, um, uh, but already I'm pretty good at running human in emulation mode, right? He touches on this Asperger's things. And back in the days, they would write about Gates with this, you know, hey, he has that. And it was a rumor underlying that people would talk about that, you know, he would lash out and walk at Worsley. You don't feel bad for anybody. You just hurt this guy's feelings, you know? Do you, do you, and I know you don't talk about this. You've not talked about it in the first book nor the second book. Is there, a, is there an element of that where it gives you the advantage because rejection, you're like, you don't even know what rejection feels like because you don't have emotions for it. Do you kind of see a strength and a correlation with that and succeeding at this level? You know, that's interesting. And, and, uh, um, it's a really good question. And uh, yes, it's definitely one that I've thought about and of course resisted making any medical diagnosis because I don't know. Um, uh, but, you know, to look at it sort of, you know, take, take a step back, there is a remarkable ability that Bezos has to fail uh, in public. You know, the, the Fire Phone is a great example, that smartphone that bombed. I tell that story in, in Amazon. Great story, by the way. Yeah, very good story. Yeah. Um, you know, other efforts. Um, it, when, when he battled with the National Enquirer over his personal relationship, yep. you know, and, and posted that, that article on Medium, um, you know, that basically risked embarrassment and, you know, did something that probably most of us, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't consider doing. And, and, you know, moved on and, and actually it was quite effective. The risking of embarrassment is another aspect of this, you know, of this ability to not, you know, not seem seemingly to care that much about public embarrassment. Yep. That, yeah, there's, there's a, a little bit of a shield, you know, to some of the negative uh, effects of growth and fame and that he has. And it's been remarkable armor, I think, for him. So, yes, I think it's definitely if, if you know, if he is like Elon somewhere there on the spectrum and we, you know, we don't know. And by the way, I've met Elon and um, I never thought that that was true. So I thought that was surprising that he would say that about himself. Uh, but in any event, yeah, I mean, it's it's clearly can be effective in, in some aspects of business building. Are you saying you met Elon because Elon actually has a personality and he's loose and, you know, is that why you're saying why you never thought Absolutely, he would have that? Absolutely, yeah. Got, got yes, it. yeah. Yeah, because even when you see that, he like even on SNL, he looked like he was having a, he was like a little kid in a candy store. You know, I, I think the biggest thing was, did you watch Tiger Woods' documentary that came out? I don't know if you... Uh, I haven't yet. I'm okay. looking forward to it. I highly recommend it. I just watched it a few weeks, so it's not like I watched it when it first came out. People kept telling me, you got to watch it. I'm like, I'll watch it. It's because, you know, Last Dance was so great. What the right, hell is going to reach that. Last Dance, right? Yeah. But when you watch it, there is a scene that, you know, there's a lot of scenes that stuck out to me. But there was one scene where his girlfriend from high school, they had videos of Tiger at her house. And at this time, Tiger's a phenom. The world already knows who he is. They already know he's going to be a star. So it's not like he's not known. But there's this part about Tiger just being childlike. And he was just letting loose. And then when his dad was around, yes, I plan on winning 19. I, I feel I will be the greatest. So it was like a robotic, but behind closed doors, it was this like loose thing. I think what we're starting to see with Elon is Elon's just finally accepted the fact that he's this, you know, big kid stuck in a brilliant genius guy's body and he's okay being himself. I, I think Elon's probably reached a level of comfort in himself more than some of these other guys have. And I think the world's enjoying Perhaps. his brilliance. Yeah, I may be wrong. Right. Who knows? But uh, that's what I noticed with them. If you don't mind sharing that story with uh, the, the phone, because 
that's a great uh, uh, management uh, uh, a tip to give to other leaders on how to deal with some of their folks who go through massive failures. I think it's a great story if you don't mind sharing that with the audience. Sure. And 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 let's uh, recognize that Amazon is in a unique position to fail, right? It, uh, you know, has this engine of, of cash growth uh, in the retail business and the cloud business. So Bezos believes he can try a lot of different things. And at the time that he's gestating Alexa, he, you know, has this idea for a phone. He wants to enter you know, this, this category of, of, uh, of device that's growing so quickly with the iPhone and, and Samsung devices back in 2010. And, you know, he, he has a notion for a phone with a three-dimensional screen that'll give you kind of a 3D image with all these front-facing cameras, and you can use the phone to scan any product, and it'll give you a price and show you how to build it. And he, he whips up the project inside the company. Like Alexa, he kind of manages it closely. The employees on it really don't get the vision. They think that Amazon should be offering a low price consistent with its image, um, but he wants something very distinctive. And they even buy, the employees buy dog tags that say disagree and commit, which is a, a leadership principle inside <laughs> Amazon, but a kind of sly way of saying that they didn't really buy into it. And, you know, the thing takes forever. Suddenly the parts are outdated. They have to restart the project inside the company. Launches in, in 2014. Uh, it, it bombs. Reviews are terrible. Customers don't buy it. And Bezos says, okay, fine. Doesn't punish his executives. Doesn't necessarily embrace the blame publicly because it was his idea, but he moves on quickly. And three months later, they, they announce Alexa. So in some ways, the, I think the lesson is, uh, trying a lot of different things, embracing failure, not uh, you know, not punishing the organization or your employees when you when when you fail, not losing a lot of time to go recognize the failure, take the write off, get past it, um, you know, and and then the fact that you know if even if you fail, as long as you're trying, you know, five other things and one of them hits, you're going to come out ahead, which is what happened with Amazon and Alexa. That that's that's a good story for him. You know, obviously it's his idea that failed, but a guy, the VP that had the project, at least he told him, I don't want you to, what, what was the line? I don't want you to think about it for a minute. Promise me you won't think about it for a minute and you'll move on. So it shows a different side of his. But, uh, you know, there's a story about you chasing down the voice actress of Alexa in Boulder, Colorado. And she told you that she cannot interview with you. What was the reason? Is that an NDA she has that she can't talk to? What was it? Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, let me set the stage really quickly. Uh, when I'm coming into this book, Amazon Unbound, I'm thinking, well, what, what, what are the, what are the secrets to unlock here? And there were a number of them, and but one of them was whose voice was emanating from this device in my kitchen. We had known that there was a voice actress behind Siri, so I figured the same thing was true for Alexa. And you know, and I've got all sorts of bits about the creation of Alexa, the first whiteboard drawing that Bezos drew on in his conference room of the device in 2011. Uh, but that voice was interesting. And I thought, you know, can I find her identity? You know, did some digging, some detective work and yeah, found a voice actress named Nina Raleigh in, in Boulder, Colorado. And right, when I called her, she really said she couldn't talk, which I figured was the case. Um, you know, yes, an, an NDA. Amazon, I think probably prefers the vo people to think of the voice Alexa as a kind of voice of God <laughs> emanating you know, from Amazon's own computer servers. But in fact, there's a voice actress who's recording a lot, a lot of audio in her home studio probably. And, and those sentences and, and phrases and paragraphs she utters, those are the words and the, and the phrases are all split up. 
you know, fed into into a, a voice recognition system, and then you know, put back together in you know, in coherent, uh, sometimes coherent, let's say, phrases to respond to user queries. So that was a fun little uh, detail in the book. Yeah, that's definitely interesting because I mean, she's more famous than she. Nobody knows what she looks like. I guess if you Google, you know what she looks like. But to most people, she may be one of the most famous people in the world. At least her voice. Well. I, I would say maybe the most famous voice in, in history. I would have to what, say. What, yeah. yeah, what could compete with that? But, um, you know, and she's been in the last four or five Super Bowls, too, without without recognition. It's crazy. I mean, the only uh, the voice that I think is very recognized, maybe it's a good voice, Morgan Freeman. But as far as famous, it would probably have to be hers. You know, uh, when, when you think about uh, Bezos, the guy's extremely strategic. You talk about him being a, you know, master chess you know plays chess with the game I, I don't is he even a chess player does he play chess or that's not his game no i believe he i believe he does uh, I, I recall him telling stories about playing chess with his grandfather growing up okay got it so that's part of it as well but in the world of business the guy knows what moves to make it seems like he's 15 moves ahead he knows his next five moves all the time and when you look at the companies he buys he bought whole foods you're like what hopeful you know you're like okay oh i got gee, great brilliant he buys twitch you know he buys you know washington post why would you buy washington post i got it to control the narrative a little bit of media if they're going to come after you, you got a big platform you got a good place all this stuff you're looking at what he buys prime all these things that he goes through that he built you know zap uh, zappos there's always a motive behind where he's going himself What's what's the motive behind his hit interest with MGM? Obviously, we don't know if the deal is going to get done or not. But what is his motive behind the? Uh, what do you think is the motive behind wanting to buy MGM? Right. Well, uh, about a decade ago, well, let's start. Let's start here. Uh, Amazon is the everything store. They want all their shelves full, infinite selection. And early on, DVDs, um, home movies were were one shelf of the everything store. You know, and and that business starts to decline. Uh, the sale of physical DVDs is going away. So what, what does Amazon do? It starts a video on demand store. You can buy movies and stream and, and download them. And then Netflix comes along with a subscription service. You know, pay a certain amount per, per month and, and watch anything you want. So Amazon copies that. Bezos integrates it into Prime. It's free for Prime members. Then Amazon and Netflix are dueling uh, to license shows like Friends or Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. It's very expensive. It's you know HBO and Showtime in the 80s. And what they realize is it's less expensive, more strategic to just make those shows and movies themselves. So Netflix and Amazon get into the production of, of original mm -hmm. TV shows and movies. That's the battle that we've seen now over many years. And MGM is, you know, a huge catalog of the James Bond movies, the Survivor TV show, and uh, the Rocky movies, the Creed movies. Amazon can plug into its vast catalog of Prime Video. That's a subscription service. They also have something called IMDb TV, which is a free streaming service supported by ads. So in some ways, MGM is, you know, a, a shot of steroids into, its, in, into this catalog of content that could tie people closer to the prime service. And when they're prime members or they're using IMDb TV, uh, you know, they're better Amazon customers. They're buying more, they're buying Kindles and Alexas. That's, that's essentially it. Um, it's this foot race that Amazon is engaged in with all these other companies, Disney, Apple, um, now HBO owned by Time Warner, being joined with Discovery uh, and Netflix and on and on to own entertainment in the 21st century. Got it. So almost like how Disney disconnected themselves from 
you know, Netflix and they went and created their own OTT and it blew up. I think it's the fastest growing in the world right. out of all the OTTs. So he's thinking about taking the MGM catalog and adding it to Amazon. You know, uh, what, what is it called? Amazon, uh, uh, their own Hulu, their own OTT. There's a name. Yeah. So, so Prime Video, yeah, Prime and, Video. Then, and then IMDb TV. And then, you know, and then also the original, you know, M MGM is a, is a movie studio and, and it's got some interesting stuff coming out. Um, it, it has the Creed franchise and Amazon is in business, you know, with um, Michael Jordan, the, the actor. Um, and, and so there's lots of avenues there for Amazon to turbocharge its, its video offerings if it buys a conventional studio. Yeah, it, it almost seems like he sits there and he says, oh, who can we go up against? Let's go against Netflix. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, let's go. Let, well, we already took out borders. Let's do Barnes. How about Walmart? You know, how about uh, right. Elon Musk? Well, he just seeds no ground, right? It's it's this belief that the company yeah. that the you know that it needs it should be everywhere where the internet is offering opportunity. So he failed on the phone side, which means let's go up against Apple and uh, you know Android, for instance. Okay, Samsung. He failed there. Fine. Do you think he has anything set in the, that he may want to go up against the social media world? I'm talking Facebook, Twitter, any of those guys? It's re that's really interesting, Patrick, because early on, I, I found out that at one point he actually had some of the earliest social media patents um, and didn't do much with them. Huh. And, um, you know, I think that's one area of, you know, with which they, they haven't been that aggressive. Um, Twitch is maybe the sort of explicit you know, anomaly there, but, but that's a little bit more of a YouTube competitor yeah, it is. Uh, and, and tied closely to video games. Um, they've, they have a social network for books called Goodreads, but they haven't done much with it. So yeah, that's one area where maybe, maybe, uh, you know, uniquely they haven't shown much uh, ambition. Yeah. I'd be curious to know because, uh, you know, long-term wise, that's the one area where you almost need to have some control if you want to have a so, but we saw Google try to do Google Plus and it didn't work out. Maybe he right. saw that as a playbook of, well, it's not that easy to do. Let's go different. I don't know. So, and by the way, I mean, maybe that's been smart. I mean, they've grown an advertising business without those assets and the social networks are in the middle of a political storm that seems yeah. unending now and around free speech and political expression yep. and Amazon, plenty of controversy and regulatory attention, but it's managed to skate past that per particular issue. That, that's a that's a very good point. That's a very good point. You always see Jack Dorsey, Zuck, all those guys, uh, you, you know, always being grilled. And I don't know if he likes being grilled. So let, let, let's talk about uh, him against AOC. What happened when they were trying to go to New York and, hey, we're going to bring a 125,000 jobs at an average of uh, 25,000 jobs at an average of $150,000 a year salary. Cuomo wanted it, but de Blasio... AOC, they kind of pushed him out. We don't want you to come here. You're going to increase rent. You're going to do that. And he's kind of like, wait a minute, what are we talking about here? I'm just bringing you good jobs. How did he handle that? And what caused him to finally say, screw it, we're going to go a different right. direction? They didn't handle it very well. Um, they were fleeing a political storm in Seattle where the Amazon had started to become blamed for the problems of growth like gentrification and homelessness and rising home rates. And that precipitated the HQ2 search, that and the fact that they were kind of running out of space in Seattle. And, you know, they whipped up the country in a frenzy of competition for, for HQ2. Folks probably remember that. 238 cities applied. 
you know, they were talking about things like the low cost of construction they were looking for, affordable home prices, uh, the size of tax incentives, good transportation networks, and then they pick New York and Washington, D.C. And so right off the bat, you know, the world's kind of shocked because that is not what they set out to do <laughs> and where they it's where they ended the most expensive yeah, exactly. city in the world. Construction. Um, and, and look, and, and I tell the story in the book, I've got the internal memos. The decision process was largely driven by by the personal preferences of Bezos and the leadership team. So they go in there. Uh, they get de Blasio and Cuomo to agree uh, on, on the Amazon package in Long Island City, but the city council is, isn't informed. And, and the dynamics of, you know, political dynamics in New York are such that, you know, whatever de Blasio wants, it, you know, the council is going to kind of reject. AOC had just been elected. And I think the, the, the surprise for Amazon was that the same political dynamics, you know, that were hurting them in Seattle were there in New York. You know, the big tech companies, the tech lash, the fear of gentrification, um, you know, so the political backlash starts. Bezos is in the helicopters at the time. So he asked for a helipad in the in the Queens headquarters. And, uh, you know, the New York Post puts it on the front page and they're off to the races. And, and ultimately, you know, they were sort of unprepared for the backlash. They didn't really get their message out. And then the whole thing kind of crystallizes on the issue of unions and whether Amazon would allow its workers to unionize. And Bezos has always fought that from the very beginning. He sees it as kryptonite for the company. And so when, you know, what I concluded was that when talks went to unionization and they saw that the political landscape was the same as it was in Seattle, it just wasn't worth it for them. And they, they pulled out, they grew instead in Manhattan and then in, in Washington, D.C. or in uh, Northern Virginia, Crystal City. You know, it almost seems like he's okay with taxes increasing. He's okay with raising minimum wage. He's okay with a lot of things, but he is not okay with the union uh, unionization of Amazon. Why is that? Right. Well, um, you know, what they'll say, and then we'll get to the real reason, is that they don't want an intermediary between them and their employees. But let me put it this way. You know, the, the Amazon website is 24-7. You can buy in the middle of the night, right? You can buy on a holiday. You can buy on a Sunday. And what that means is that the company really has to get as close as possible to a 24-7 operating cycle and to go scale up in, during the holidays or when if a pandemic breaks out and someone's suddenly buying or if there's a sudden surge in interest for a particular piece of merchandise, and then they scale down afterwards. So they're hiring and they're firing and they're working around the clock. And they're suddenly, you know, if there's a backlog, they're shifting employees to different jobs. Um, and all those things, Patrick, that I just described are things that, you know, a union that's going to, you know, very quite naturally want to instill some order on their workers' lives and create some employment security, it's going to collectively bargain against. And so I think Amazon's viewed unions as a as an impediment to their ability to push employees to be flexible and to churn through workers in the fulfillment centers as the needs of the company change. That's probably the most charitable way to put it. Um, you know, but um, you know, we've seen again and again around the world Amazon walking away from from facilities when the discussion turns to unions. Yeah, you you see, like even what was going on with Georgia, he's like, right the day before they announced that, uh, uh, you know, they were about to announce that, hey, the voting, all that stuff that was going to take place the day before he goes up and says, I think we should raise taxes. And I think we should, you know, rich people should pay more taxes. And then the next day, the union topic just kind of went away. It almost seemed like behind closed doors, there was a negotiation saying, if you say something about raising taxes, we'll make uh, Atlanta go away or Georgia go away. And it kind of did. 
with the union topic, but let's go to a different topic. So everybody has a, a an arch nemesis and some of them change. Some of them change from your 20s to your 30s to your 40s. And you, you kind of graduate from it, right? Every time you're going to like, let's just say when Michael's coming up, maybe it was magic. Then it became, let's just say Isaiah, you know, then it became, you know, somebody like Barkley, some of these guys that you go through. Would you say, you know, Bezos' number one nemesis right now is a guy named Elon Musk? Well, um, yeah, I mean, it was Donald Trump uh, for many years. Uh, they they famously went at it. And, you know, I tell some of that story in the book. Uh, right now, I, I think maybe that's right, Patrick. Um, Bezos has this company, Blue Origin. It's this space company. It's older than SpaceX. But he made some choices early on to, to constrain his investment, to go slow, keep the headcount small, and to move a step-by-step suborbital space, then orbital, then the moon. And Elon came in with SpaceX and kind of, you know, just went much faster and got the government to pay for a lot of his projects. And so Jeff has been, you know, uniquely in space kind of struggling to catch up. He's not used to being the second at anything, uh, you know, and, and now he is. And then we see Amazon trying to launch a satellite network to compete with Starlink, which is a SpaceX effort. So I do think there's a, a spirited rivalry there. Yeah, for sure. And I don't, you know, I don't know that Bezos, look, he is the richest guy in the world. And Am the creation of Amazon probably dwarfs, you know, the creation of other companies at this point in terms of just the impact and the overall market cap. So I don't know how really rivalrous he feels, but certainly in this respect and, the, and, and where we started the conversation, Elon's ability to whip uh, his followers into fans while Bezos kind of suffers the slings and arrows of criticism for Amazon's impact on the economy. Yeah, I'm sure he looks at Elon and sort of feels that there are elements there that, uh, you know, he, he needs to work harder to, to capture himself. Does Bezos kind of see him? I know you said it earlier where I said, you know, it's more like Jobs, Musk, you know, uh, Zuck, Gates, Bezos. And he said, no, he kind of sees himself here. Is he, is, does he think he's Michael Jordan? Does he think he's like Brady? Does he think he's, He's it. Does he walk in thinking, well, all these guys are trying to catch up to me? Or does he see himself as the underdog? Man, I got to go be better than what Walmart built, what this guy did, what Rockefeller did. What is he like? Is there somebody he's chasing? Does he have a ghost he's chasing? Like LeBron's chasing the ghost? Yeah, like, like, like that. You know, does he have Vanderbilt, Rockefeller? Is he going right. after somebody like that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I can't speak for him. I don't. I don't know. Um, he is a student of history, right? He he he's a voracious reader. There are elements of of the Sam Walton philosophy and and autobiography that he's woven into Amazon. Um, look, I mean, I, I I'm going to guess that I I don't think so, um, but that he he understands that part of the uh, legacy of some of the business figures, the historical business figures you mentioned, was their philanthropic contributions and that he's got a lot of work to do. He's got a fortune that's about $200 billion that'll probably grow faster than he can give it away. And he's going to be measured based on how productive and effective he is doing that. And we've seen, um, you know, Bill Gates and, and others make major contributions, but also sort of stumble. The, the work of giving the money away can be as difficult as the work of accumulating the wealth. So, and so, yeah, he's got a lot of he's got a lot of work to do yeah. before, you know, he's viewed as a, you know, billionaire philanthropist who made a positive contribution and not just, you know, this operator who, who managed to accumulate all this power. And, you know, the world feels very complicated about Bezos and Amazon right True. now. So. 
you know, I don't know that there's a person he's chasing, but there might be an ideal, um, you know, that he still has to get to before he really retires. Last question before we wrap up. So competition, you know, uh, uh, they say 70% of Fortune 500 companies from 1960 are no longer around. You know, it's like these companies are no longer around. They were at the top. Everybody was like, oh, my gosh, and they're no longer around. Kmart was God, you know, at one point in Walmart was trying to catch up after the 1962 and a half, the super saving center year where Walmart, Kmart, Target all came out five years later, you know, Walmart has 250, uh, Kmart has 250 stores, Walmart has eight stores, Kmart goes out of business, Walmart is dominating today, right? Is Amazon something that you see yourself being around five years from now, uh, 50 years from now, where this is going to be so hard to beat these guys? Or if there was a way where competition could take these guys out, do you have any insight on how that would be? Right. Well, f five years from now is easy. 50 years is harder. Um, right now, Amazon is, I, I like to say, a boulder rolling downhill gathering speed. The, the fulfillment centers are getting closer to major cities. The, the delivery is getting faster. Um, the selection is getting larger as they open up the, the marketplace to sellers around the world. And they've got you know so many resources, not just the the profit of the company, but the the capital they're willing they're able to raise you know cheap prices from Wall Street. The future of Amazon is is more Amazon entering into more countries and more products and becoming an entertainment giant. In 50 years, I mean, one weakness of the, of the company is that it, there's so much surface area that there are these pockets of opportunity for newcomers. Shopify, the Canadian company is a good example of going right to brands who are hesitant of kind of the chaos of Amazon to sell directly to customers. So, I mean, I think, yeah, I think Amazon's around in a couple of decades when Bezos sort of predicts that, you know, the, the future could be cloudy. He's trying to motivate his employees, but this is a historic company. I think it's, it's the company that's gonna define the current century in good ways and bad. And I think, you know, if regulators and lawmakers want to catch up to it, you know, they need to understand it, which is one of the reasons I, I wrote the book and get into the mechanics and, and really look for, you know, the true anti-competitive behavior or behavior that needs to be regulated. And it's not easy because this, in some ways, it's not a monopoly. It's in the biggest markets of the world, retail and enterprise software, uh, and doesn't really command even a majority um, of, of, the, of the market activity. So, yeah, I think... Um, you know, Amazon will be around. And if it does get split up, there'll just be a little, lot of little baby Bezos uh, running around uh, gobbling up the, the marketplace. So that's not, you know, that that's probably not going to give competitors any comfort either. Which means meaning they could go other places and start other companies or you're saying within Amazon uh, eco, eco. Well, I was just saying if, 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 if the government was going to break up Amazon or Amazon Got was it. going to break yeah. itself up. Yeah. Um, it, it might not slow it down. It just might mean, yep. you know, some very highly valued independent pieces that uh, have the Amazon culture and the Bezos operating style, and, you know, and are just as aggressive and competitive, but multiple entities instead of just one. Yeah. I mean, you kind of saw that happen with Watson's and IBM where they try to break them apart because they're only, I think their only enemy right now is going to be the government. We're saying, Hey, you're kind of becoming a monopoly and, and them getting in their way. Uh, and some of the guys may leave. Like, you know how back in the days, if you worked under Jack Welch, you put that onto your resume. You're like, I worked under Jack Welch for five years. Really? Yeah. Let's hire this guy as an executive and bring him on board. So some people may use it as a way to help him out with the rest of their career. Brad, it's been a pleasure having you on, man. I really enjoyed talking to you folks. If you're watching this, we're going to put the link to his book, Amazon Unbound, below. Make sure you order it. Once again, Brad, thanks for being on Valuetainment. 
Thanks, Patrick. So I'm curious what you took away from this interview here about Bezos, Amazon, culture, how we work, his personality, his DNA, the father story. Fascinating stuff with uh, Brad Stone. Comment below. I want to hear from you. Also, if you enjoyed this interview, I've got two other ones I want you to watch. One of them is with a uh, deep dive that uh, Tom Ellsworth did on AWS case study. It's If you want to know more about why AWS is crushing it and why Andy Jazzy became the CEO of Amazon, click over to watch it. And if you want to find out about storytelling and marketing, why companies like Amazon end up becoming who they are, watch my interview with Don Miller on how he breaks down the art of storytelling and marketing. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.